0: Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to
1: let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to Episode 241 with my guest, Glenn Rockowitz. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Uh, The website for this show is mentalpod.com. MentalPod is also the Twitter handle that you can uh, follow me at. Uh, Please go check out our website. There's a forum. You can read blogs. You can fill out surveys that we might read on air. Um, There's all kinds of things. You can support the show financially by going there. Um, And speaking of supporting the show, uh, I would love it if you guys could come out uh, and see a live taping. I'm doing two of them uh, this month. Uh, One is in Los Angeles at LA PodFest, and that's going to be Saturday night, September 19th. And then the other one is uh, in Brooklyn on Sunday night, uh, September 27th at 7 p.m. at the Bell House in Brooklyn. And uh, my guest in for the L.A. one is uh, comedian Jackie Cation. And my guest uh, for the Brooklyn one is uh, writer-performer uh, Lane Moore. So uh, really looking forward to both of those. Uh, for PodFest, uh, go to lapodfest.com. And uh, you can also purchase a streaming uh, ticket, And so you don't have to be there and you can watch video live or for up to a month afterwards of, uh, the episode with Jackie uh, as well as the other 20 so uh, podcasts that are at the LA Pod Festival again that one's lapodfest.com and then the website to get tickets for the Brooklyn event uh, go to thebellhouseny.com, and that's T-H-E-B-E-L-L-H-O-U-S-E-N-Y dot com and you can get tickets there are 15 in advance and 20 at the door and um, This week in hockey, you know, as I've shared before on the podcast, one of the best barometers for where I'm at emotionally and spiritually, physically, and mentally um, is what my actions are like when I'm playing hockey and I play a couple of times a week. And this last Sunday, um, because all my issues get magnified on the hockey rink. I don't know if it's because I got adrenaline going or that's where a lot of my... (laughs) issues stem from a childhood but um I was playing a pickup game on uh Sunday night which is basically you know one person will kind of pick teams divide you into one team wears light color jerseys the other wears dark color jerseys and um and the guy that runs it uh, sometimes stacks the teams in his favor, and he did this this night. And I'm not exaggerating. After 45 minutes, the score was something like 30 to two, and uh, and and I'm finding myself getting angry and frustrated. I mean, we couldn't even get the puck out of our end, and. I use those moments to go, okay, well, let's see how much of this we can handle. Let's see how emotionally strong you are because in the grand scheme of things, this is meaningless. This might be a great chance for you to practice not having control, for you to just let something go and find find the beauty where you could in here. Maybe, maybe the beauty will be that you'll make one single good play in the next half hour and and that's enough. And that thought lasted for about 30 seconds, and then I tried running people into the boards. <laughs> and mind you, people I like. People who on other weeks, they're my teammates and, you know, we're high-fiving each other and having fun and making great plays, and I just want to run them over. And I'm checking them, and, and I'm playing beyond the boundary of what is, you know, clean but aggressive play. I'm starting to be a dick out there. And, uh, and of course, then I can't even keep my mouth shut and I skate by the bench and, uh, look at the guy who runs the pickup who would put the teams together. And, uh, and I said, uh, yeah, next time you put the teams together, give me somebody who can fucking pass on my team and skate it away. And then he came off the bench and, uh, and I kind of took a run at him and, uh, and we got into it a little bit. Not a fight or anything, but just, uh, a lot of dirty looks and, and I just felt, I just, have you ever been so angry that you're watching yourself act out and and half of you is shaking your head, f- almost feeling pity <laughs> for you and the other part of you is engaged in it and doesn't give a shit because there's somewhat of a sick release in, in acting out. And uh, that's... That was my week in hockey. And so afterwards, I was like, all right, all right well, you know, it's, this isn't necessarily about the game. It's not usually about the game. It's usually some other stressor in my life is is bringing up, um, you know, that this represents the fact that I feel powerless in some other area of my life, and this is the this is the thing that I can address because the other area of my life that I feel so powerless over is usually so complex and overwhelming that I just ignore it and watch Netflix or play Civil, Civilization 5 for nine hours straight. But that's where I'm at. Um, let's read some surveys. This is uh, from this. These are actually all from the Struggle in a Sentence survey. And uh, let me take a sip of tea. Put my glasses on. Oh my God, could I sound older and lamer? Cover cover my uh, my knees with an afghan. Put down my knitting. Turn off my 78 of Glenn Miller. Uh, this is filled out by, this is quite a name. She calls herself Life is Peaches and Cream when the specialist dietician has to refer you out because you are beyond her scope of practice. That name would not fit on the back of a jersey. Anyway, about her depression, she writes, walking a tight line of dental floss with the reaper waiting for you to fall. About her bulimia, showing up with salivary glands so swollen you look like you swallowed a license plate and your boss stares at you like he's trying to read what it says. Well, those are so descriptive. Um, this is filled out by Alex Luxer. Um... About her depression. Like watching boring TV, but un- but unable to leave it. Boy, did I relate to that one. Do I relate to that one? Matt writes about his love addiction. You just have to not be repulsed by me, and I will give you everything I have. That's a, that's a pretty high bar, Matt. You just have to not be repulsed by me. Uh lost mental nomad writes about her anorexia it's the only rock i can hold on to when the tides threaten to drown me when the waters calm i paddle away a bit but the swells always get to me before i can reach the shore about her ocd curses exist and they're all aimed at me i have to spend every waking moment making sure i fend them off or else about living with an abuser every time he takes a sip i bleed in equal measure His determination to stop is the only thing that clots my wounds. I wish he'd stop killing us both. Wow, that is profound. That is profound. Trixie writes about her depression. I'm tired, but I can't get comfortable anywhere, and I'm too old to cry this much. Snapshot from her life. Weeping in my office at work with the door closed, afraid someone will come in, and wishing someone who gave a shit would find me crying and help me. That breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. Unfortunately, a lot of times we have to be the person to speak up. Um, but boy, do I know that feeling of just wanting somebody to come scoop me up and and hold me and make me better. Um, Joy Story writes about uh, her anxiety. I just wish all the bad things would start happening and I could f- stop uh, worrying about them. <laughs> finally. Uh, Blackout Beauty writes about her depression. I felt depressed for so long that it's almost comforting. The idea of changing it and trying to be happy frightens me because I don't know who I am outside of this empty cave where my brain resides. About her anxiety, I'm just so afraid of everyone else finding out how afraid I am. About her sex addiction, because I can't fill the hole in my heart, I may as well fill the hole between my legs so I can actually feel something, anything. Ali, 36, writes about his depression. How can I feel so bad and so numb at the same time? Oh my God, do I relate to that? Do I relate to that? That is is such a a beautifully, beautifully written struggle in a sentence. Uh, And Merlin writes about uh, her depression. It feels like I will only ever be as good as my medication about living with an abuser. I can't tell whether explaining how my behavior is influenced by past abuse is legitimate or if I really am as manipulative as my abuser says. In a snapshot from her life, my boyfriend is understanding, empathetic, and would rather talk things out than have an argument. It scares the shit out of me. My God, somebody does what I've been doing. There's shame. You have boundary issues. I feel guilty for hating my mom. I will be high by 4 p.m. You feel helpless.
0: I will be in hell by 4.15.
1: Prison was not easy, but I deserved it. I think I'm just addicted to lying.
0: I rubbed my body in mud and I laid in the swamp. didn't move for six hours.
1: I looked forward to and dreaded each meal at the same time i think i desperately
0: desperately wanted to talk about it but i didn't know how to start the conversation and that's when i I called the suicide hotline a good Craigslist experience is if you are alive at the end of it so (laughs) so that is when i first felt love like i first felt reaching out to the people and sharing with the other people um this intimate connection where people do stuff for each other without wanting something in return yeah i just i surrender and I think I was 28, and that was the first time I ever experienced that, and it was amazing.
1: I'm here with Glenn Rockowitz, uh, who is... Or do you pronounce it uh, Rockowitz? Rockowitz. Yeah, yeah, that's what I figured. Um, who is a uh, voiceover artist, uh, former stand-up comedian. Um, you wrote uh, briefly for Saturday Night Live, but the real reason uh, I want to have you on here is you um, have a lot of experience as a cancer survivor and it going away and coming back and going away and coming back. <laughs> and um, you were told in the 90s. Yeah. What was what did your doctor tell you?
0: I was. Um, well, it's, it's interesting because I, I think with a lot of young people, they go to doctors, with these symptoms that I think are very often written off pretty uh sort of cavalier in a Mm -hmm. way like you're young don't worry about it so I started being like extremely tired when I was about 24 in this weird kind of you're how old right now uh I am 45 now okay so when I was about 24 I just started feeling extremely exhausted and a weird kind of exhausted where like like I was so we just kind of assumed it was depression because I just didn't want to get out of bed ever and but i felt like my blood was like on fire like i could just i felt like i could run and run and run and run but i just didn't have strength to get out of bed that, that, that seems so yeah
1: so almost like you were anxious but tired
0: exactly okay. exactly it was almost it's almost like if you t- like if you're one of those people that takes Sudafed and yeah. you have the exact opposite where it almost activates you mm-hmm. that's how it felt and so i just started seeing doctors so you weren't necessarily sleepy no, no. You were just, just, you had
1: no strength.
0: Exactly. But amped up with no strength. Yeah. Okay. And so it was a weird sort of place to be where you felt like, God, oh, I could conquer the world, but at the same time, like, I just don't want to get out of bed. That's the perfect state to masturbate. By the way. <laughs> and believe me, I took good advantage <laughs> of it for sure. For sure. I went through a lot of VHS tapes, for sure. Like the same one that just got worn out after a while. <laughs> this was 20 years ago. <laughs> exactly. VHS was state of the you art. You hadn't yeah.
1: even gone to DVD DVDs yet.
0: Exactly. <laughs> was I was just getting the, the why, dirt off my magazines. Why so. not reel to reel? Why not really? <laughs> (laughs) Treat yourself to some. These were talkies. Like there was definitely there was audio in these ones. Uh, And your porno is uh, stop motion, right? It is all stop motion. It's like it's like those little viewfinders that they had. They just kind of just keep going really fast. Click 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 click. Oh, look at her topless in her dress by the Eiffel Tower.
1: (laughs) Doesn't that (laughs) seem like that should be a dirty a dirty postcard from the eighteen hundreds? Some woman just flashing a boob in front of the Eiffel Tower.
0: Um. So, uh, so yeah, my porn collection was, was pretty, uh, was pretty shitty and, uh, and I wasn't even inclined to masturbate as much as I really would have enjoyed it, I think, which should have been a big red flag. Um, and I think, so I started the process, I was uninsured and so I started going to different doctors. Those doctors looked at me because I was 24 and said, well, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm working 40 hours and then I'm working another 15 hours doing this and I was doing stand up at night and, They're like, you're just overworked. That's it. And so no one bothered to kind of explore it for us. But I felt like deep in my bones that something was wrong. Did they run blood tests? They ran very cursory blood tests, like just a basic CBC, which showed a slight elevation in my white blood cells, but not enough for them to kind of want to pursue it. Mm -hmm. Um, Would you like a water? Oh, I've got one. Thank you. So, um, so we were just kind of like just felting a little I felt a little defeated, and I was in therapy at the time. I should mention, my father was a psychoanalyst, my mother a psychologist. Oh my god! Yeah, so that's why I'm so fucked up. Were, yeah. were,
1: were you uh, raised in a in an environment that
0: was emotionally open or analytical? Uh, Over analytical, okay. you know, because my dad was a pretty strict Freudian, because he was very old school, and so there was no, nothing that was said that didn't have some kind of ulterior motive or some other meaning. Which became very exhausting when you were just needing basic things and everything had a meaning to it. It I bet. It was a little like, okay. All right, I just need the fucking He just couldn't him. he just couldn't disconnect from his intellect, could he? Yeah, and he was extremely bright, but he also had, he was very combustible in the way that I like I would describe him as a dry alcoholic in the sense that he he never drank, he never smoked, he was very healthy runner, but he you just never knew whether you were going to get the monster or the sort of kitten on any given moment. I used, to, I used to describe him as like cotton candy wrapped in barbed wire. Like you knew there was something very sweet in the middle, but fuck, you would just get mm. torn up trying to get there. And he was so smart that you would walk away from it feeling like, okay, I misread that all, or there's definitely something wrong with me, or what? You know, there was no... I was too young to go hey, it's possible he's fucked up you know mm-hmm. like I just didn't make I just didn't make that connection And now you can look back and go oh he
1: was he was full of fear and
0: he was oh, yeah. lonely and wildly sad. insecure yeah yeah and you know and it's interesting because I'm not because I'm not a jock and because I was never good at sports I was just like into music and stuff he you've got uh, an amazing build oh <laughs> dude you're you're like ripped <laughs> It's like a Jewish Henry Rollins, right?
1: <laughs> You do. You do.
0: Um I'm a liar, booby <laughs> <laughs> Um so, so I just was not um my father used to say your mother wanted a girl, I wanted a boy, and we got both. Which was Your father would say that to you? Yeah. You You know, he's a psychoanalyst too, right? So it would, and from what I found out later, uh, it was something that his father said to him as well. So it was kind of like this always sort of beating into the fact that I was sort of faggy because I wasn't into sports and stuff like that. Um, You know, I look back on it, like he, he was a very, he was a very loving man, but it was, it was almost like because you just didn't know what you were going to get at any given moment. It was like this sort of state of anxiety and you panic. Can't, yeah, you can't absorb it yeah. when it's fraught with danger. Exactly, exactly. Because even in those moments, and um, I was listening to uh, your um and and forgive me if, if you don't want to get into this, and that's fine, but, but like, I was, uh, Jessica Zucker's first episode with you, mm-hmm. where you were talking about your mother and, like, that moment when she would grab your face and say, but inside, you're rotten. Mm-hmm. Like, it was that sort of, like, weird kind of double message of, like, you know... It wasn't sexualization, but it was more like a, like a, a loving sort of supportive, but always, mm-hmm. you know, and he's to say, it doesn't matter if you were successful. He would come and see me at Second City and he's like, you know who I think is going to be famous? That guy, uh, um, Steve Carell that's in, the, on the main stage there. I think he's going to be famous. I think you could do it, but I will be there to remind you that you're not great. Like you're not, you're not going to be. I don't want you to think you're the shit. I don't want you to think you're important, you know? And, and at wow. the time I thought, well, that's interesting. But at the same time, I was like, you know, in in time I said, God damn it. I would never say that to my son. Like I just, it was a weird, it was a weird sort of, it was all very crazy until I was able to sort of look at his life, um, it, you know, when I got a chance to kind of, as an adult, look back at it. And I think he dealt with a lot of that stuff from his father that I think he meant well. Um but I think it was just a repeat of that old shit that he got. I bet.
1: Yeah. Um, I bet.
0: Because when I remember for his fiftieth birthday, I was at Second City the time of his fiftieth, and I thought it'd be fun to roast him for his fiftieth. So I asked his mother, like um my grandmother, said, you know, like dad told me about being on the football team, being captain of the football team and I just do you have pictures of it or whatever. And she's like, he wasn't on the football team. He was a cheerleader. I was like holy shit this is amazing like a great moment but then I used it to roast him and I remember him saying afterwards that he had to change his shirt cuz he had sweated through cuz it was it became a clear that I had gotten information that debunked everything he told me his whole life which was really a deflection of his own like so all the sort of faggy stuff I got was really a deflection for him because he was a cheerleader and because he had these somewhat feminine qualities. Incredibly sensitive guy and very very, very sweet, like that I think he was teased about by his father. And so I think I think he wasn't evolved enough maybe at that point to sort embrace
1: of, what was beautiful about yeah, himself.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. what a shame. It was, it was and, and and it wasn't until the end of his life that he that we had that moment together when I think he realized, holy fuck, I wasted so much time um, with this kind of uh, this bullshit like just you know, I, I don't know how else to articulate it, but I just think he just felt incredibly disappointed in himself and how much he missed out on himself. He was vehemently against um, medication when it came to psychiatric stuff because he was a psychoanalyst right? So that was just a different camp. They didn't use meds. Um, but when it came time, I went through a very deep depression where I didn't leave my apartment for like a month. And the therapist that I saw said to me, I think it's, I think it's time. She was also a psychoanalyst. She was one of his professors in college or whatever, extremely bright woman with a crazy life story as Holocaust survivor. Um, and she said, I think it's time we look into medication and I was really resistant and my dad said I think you should do it so that's interesting that you say that because you were kind of uh, you know completely against that and he's like but I think you're he gave me this sort of typical analogy that you hear with with you know psychopharmacology which is like if you're a diabetic you need insulin Mm -hmm. if you have sort of serotonin and norepinephrine, dopamine things going on in your brain then you take those things and the truth is getting on an ssri specifically prozac did completely change um the level of depression that i felt most of my life so i think it was great in that way but he was still a hypocrite because he still wasn't Mm -hmm. willing to do it for himself and Mm -hmm. it took away these sort of rage moments that i had in between um and i think it changed sort of my trajectory in terms of being able to cope with stuff but it was interesting that he was so vehemently against it you know um and uh you know the only reason that he even got there was after 4 years of going to doctors and them just saying i went to 9 doctors and all of them said um, we don't aside from a slight increase in lymphocytes we don't, really don't see anything it's no you don't have insurance there's no use doing these tests just go stop working so much whatever it was And I just had this horrible feeling, Um, but I just dealt with it. I just – life went on, and I just lived with this weird fatigue. For how long? Um, For almost four years. Oh, my God. For four years. And And it was cancer all along. Yeah. It was building up. That's the worst part about it. It was a very early – it it was non Hodgkin's lymphoma, but had I caught it at 24, it would have been a very different thing because when I finally went to – the weird, the weird irony is, after SNL, I started this organization that brought comedians, good ones, like the, <laughs> <laughs> I should, I should really clarify that, like, <laughs> like you know, the uh, Gaffigan group uh, yeah. in New York that that I was working with into homes of people who were in the last weeks of their life for homebound AIDS patients and cancer patients, um, and what I found to be a transformative experience that comics most of which were like, where's the 20 bucks? And some of them, you know, and some of them were really moved by it. But I was so moved by it. And this was for four years, this was going on. And meanwhile, I was getting sick this whole time.
1: Oh you hadn't I had, started no, this No, that's oh, the, the irony. irony. Yeah,
0: yeah, I like this was 4 years before I got sick, before I was diagnosed What I'm had saying.
1: led you to the uh
0: the the impulse to start this thing? Um because my grand when my grandmother was dying of colon cancer, I went to go visit her in the nursing home, and she had a really kind of fucked up sense of humor that I really loved um and I think I learned a lot from her, but when I was visiting her there Uh, I really liked worked overtime spinning the plates trying to get her to laugh And, um, and I remember just her whole change in her being when I was just sort of doing bits and fucking around with her and one day she was bitching and complaining. I said, you know, if you keep the shit up, what I'm gonna do is honestly I'm gonna wheel the I'm gonna take the wheelchair out to the parking lot, I'm gonna face you against a wall, I'm gonna lock it, I'm leaving you there. And she <laughs> and she laughed and then she was complaining about something important like the pudding or whatever. <laughs> and I wheeled her out all to the far the very far end of the parking lot, up against the brick wall. I locked the wheels and I just left her there. And I stood back. It was a big parking lot, <laughs> and I just stood back and I watched her laugh, like in in a, in a laugh of like that sort of discomfort when a roll keeps going and you're like, okay, it, it times up, you know. But yeah. it, I just let it sit there as much as I could. Um, and we talked afterwards, and um when I finally relented, and she just said, she's like, I'm telling you, it like when I am laughing, like I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm let out of prison in this place, and I'm so depressed. Because as soon as I checked in here, I realized this is a one way street. Like, I'm never going back out and playing tennis or never going out and doing whatever. I'm here to die. So, she said, when I'm like, when I can fucking laugh, it was such a relief for me. And so that's what gave me the idea. And I was so depressed after SNL. I think partly because I was so young when I got the job that I thought, um, I thought, well, I, I achieved the thing I wanted to achieve, and now I don't know what the fuck to do with myself. Because uh, I didn't realize, oh, you can move on and do another job in the same field. I just thought, well, I guess it's over. You were let go? Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. And like, so you thought that I had my shot and i blew blow it. Yeah. Yeah. So it didn't even occur to me that the other writers who were let go were parlaying it into going – to seinfeld or like like (laughs) other shows but that made sense but i just thought well i did it i get i gave it my best shot and then i took some job cleaning like rat shit out of fur storage vaults in manhattan for like no money and then i worked for a newspaper and like for fourteen thousand a year i just was in that self-esteem place of like well i i peaked early that was it (laughs) um and then meanwhile, like Steve Carell keeps moving out, I'm like, I'm like, my father was right. He really did that guy really <laughs> took off for him. He did not right for himself. Um but uh yeah, so I was doing this nonprofit thing for for four years, and um and through it I met this oncologist because I was performing for his patients, and we became very close friends. And someone convinced me over lunch. Like a friend of mine who I was having lunch with said, are you on drugs? And I'm like, Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> She's like, no, seriously. Are you? I said, no. And she goes, cause your eyes are so dilated. I go, how can you, like my eyes are so brown. How can you tell? She's like, I don't know, but they just look dilated. Why don't you go see Jay, the, the oncologist? And I said, I don't want to bug him or whatever. She said, just go see him. So I went and saw him. He ran the blood work. He's like, it's off. He's like, but off enough where we should do a scan. They did a scan. And I got a call, and this became sort of the, the, new, the new sort of tell-all in the cancer world for me. I got a call from him, and he said, I was living in Manhattan at the time, and he said, come uptown to my office, let's talk. So I figured out since, when, you, when a nurse calls, you're in good shape. When your doctor calls with test results, bad news. So I walked into his office, and I will never forget because he had my films up on the wall and he was crying because we had become close. And I said, uh, I said, this is not a great sign that you're crying. <laughs> like, I feel like it's sort of like, uh, sort of like being on a plane and, a, like, a you're the fucking captain runs out of the cockpit screaming, you know? It's like, what the fuck? Is this a good, is this a good idea? We got a little turbulence and now we're gone. So, um, so it was a little terrifying. Um, and he said, I, uh, he's, he said, you have, Something called non-Hod- B cell non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. It's very aggressive. He said, "You'll see it," and he showed me on the wall. He's like, "It's everywhere." And I said, "What does that mean?" And he goes, "You know." He's crying, and I'm like I'm like rubbing his back. I'm like, "This is not. <laughs> this is not the way I think this is supposed to go." Um, but he's like, "He's like I'd say you have three months," and I was like, "Holy shit!" I was 28 years old, and my wife at this point was eight and a half months pregnant. Oh my god! So I. So I now, the next thing I remember is being on Park Avenue, walking down. I had vomited on myself, and I don't remember doing that. And I was just going home to my apartment, which was on 34th Street. And I just kept thinking, I can't tell her. I can't tell her because she's about to have a baby. I'm not going to see this baby live past three months, but I, I, I just can't tell her. I can't tell her. So that was my thing, is that I wasn't going to tell her, and I didn't. Um, I didn't tell her that day, and, you know. Didn't it, she know something was wrong? Um, not really, not really. I think she, you know, she asked how it went, and I said, it was fine, everything's all right, same, same thing. They just think I'm working too much, whatever. Um, and at the time, I was, like, doing, like, weird theater things, so... I figured, okay, well, if I start losing my hair, I can shave my head. And so I just was doing all this math. I just knew that, um, that see, what had happened was this, her, her mother was diagnosed with lung cancer and given three months, and then she died almost exactly three months later. And she was completely devastated by that in her life and that absence of her mother in her life. So being knowing I had this news, and she's so close to giving birth, I thought well, you wanted it to be enjoyable for the, the last <laughs> yeah I at least get through that without fuck, the panic
1: yeah and you know fuck that you might need some support and some love <laughs> well let's take care of, of everybody
0: around me sort of and that became I think it became my downfall ultimately re- only until recently in many ways that I just became this sort of army of one that I thought I didn't need anybody I could ju- I would just take this shit myself You know, and I think uh, it was only a few days that I said, I can't, there's no way, I cannot tell anybody. So I called my dad, who was living in Boston at the time, and I said, I'm just going to come see you, hang out. Great, come on down. So I took the train down, and he and I went for a walk, and it was a very snowy Boston day. and, And I remember telling him, that i had this cancer and that it was that they were giving me three months and i had never seen him cry ever and he really sort of broke down and um he had no words and it was a very um he
1: couldn't even muster calling you a sissy
0: (laughs) um he did call me faggot under his breath which (laughs) did make me feel good i felt like okay the old man's still there um he um but yeah, he did not. He didn't know. Um, I, th- I genuinely think he was just completely sort of rocked by that. And I remember that night because he was a devout atheist, and uh, I remember that night hearing him because I was in the guest room, which was right next to his bedroom. He was praying, which something he didn't do. And then my stepmom told me the next day that he was, he was asking God to take away my cancer and give it to him and on this walk um what did you think when you heard that i think for a long time i wanted to kill myself with with how it turned out because he um what do you mean um well i'll tell you he had for the previous year he had been complaining about heartburn Oh, So you know where this is going. Oh, dude. He was complaining about heartburn and he was going to his doctors and Boston's a great city for hospitals. And so I, f- I think everyone felt he was in good hands. They were giving him Prilosec and saying it's heartburn. And um. so I said, to, he said, well, this is a wake up call. I should go in and just get checked. And seven days from that day, the day that I told him, he called me when I was back in New York and said, I just remember him crying, which again, never heard. But just saying, he's like, I, I have pancreatic cancer, apparently, and I knew I didn't. I didn't have to know much about cancer to know that you don't survive it. It has a zero percent survival rate. So like pancreatic. You mm-hmm. mean, yeah. yeah, it's also it's a very painful cancer and it's also unsurvivable. Um, even like when Steve Jobs was diagnosed, everyone's like, I think he you know, surgery. He's doing great, and I'm like, he'll probably survive past the five years. But he's not going to survive. Nobody survives. And, and um, you know, and, and so my dad just went into a very deep depression. And he and I just started, we just spent time together because we were both essentially dying at that point. Wow. And, um, and we how were, long was he given? Um, he was given six months. Uh, but... Yeah, he made it, he made it be, a, well, I don't remember exactly how much longer, but, um, but I think he had a, he actually had a harder time, I think, dealing with the reality that he was going, uh, than, than I did. I think I, I think I numbed over in a way that I'm not 100% sure as I'm sitting here now that I'm, I'm not there still on some place in some way because I just sort of revert back to this survival place. Um, but my dad, um, we just spent a, a lot of time together and talking about all of sort of the same shit.
1: Did his and, walls finally drop?
0: Yeah, only because they put him on Zoloft and he was resistant. And I said, what the fuck do you have to lose at this point? Like what? Like?" And he's like, you know, I'll try it. And it was so transformative for him that he laughed and he said, oh, fuck. He's like, fuck, I should... I can't even believe that this was available to me for the last 10 years and I did not this could have completely turned around my days like and and that sort of sweetness that I always saw in him that I that I longed to connect with I think um was opened up in a way like the barbed wire was just gone and uh and it was pretty fucking amazing to just be to have access to the sort of sweet core that he was without that sort of fear of rage moments or this mm-hmm. weird kind of separation. Um, and um, I went to London for a clinical trial because it was out of clinical trial here in the U.S. And I went through a brutal clinical trial when they were it was phase two of the trial so they hadn't figured out how much radiation they could inject into me. Excuse me. And Um, uh, and so I lost a ton of weight and my skin was just getting very thin. And, and I remember I went by myself because my wife was home with our son and I just didn't want him to be around it. And, um, and it was probably a mistake because I was, it was, it was a bit of an emotional thing as well as a physical thing. Um, but he... I, mean, I talked to my dad every day on the phone, and I could hear him getting weaker. and um, And they basically said to me, "If this doesn't work, then when you get back to the U.S., it, it's a matter of weeks. So you got to get your will. You got to get." I'm like, I'm 28 years old. I have nothing. Like, I have not. There's no. There's no will to give, You know.
1: I gotta say, you and your dad.
0: It sounds like a sitcom. There. <laughs> I mean, I'm not against pitching it. For sure, I mean, because the uh, staffing season is going to roll around in a couple of months, and I mean, I'm open, I'm very open to it. Uh, I haven't figured the name yet. Uh, White blood cell buddies. Um, I like it. I feel like it's a little, it's a little wordy. And there's too many syllables. Yeah. What about with your kind remission? <laughs> <laughs> do, do you like that? <laughs> <laughs> remission slip. How about that one? <laughs> <laughs> so um my so i actually got the call of my um remission on the day of my dad's funeral wow which was pretty fucking crazy um
1: and and so the clinical trials had helped
0: yeah the clinical trial saved my life and um it became sort of the standard of care in the U S for a while. It only like literally like six months ago, they took it off the market cause they found they sort of honed it and made it a little bit better. But the one that I was treated with was, was kind of the standard for a while. Um, but putting so much intravenous radiation into my body caused three additional cancers that I went through and, you know, kind of the ensuing years afterwards. Um, different kinds of cancers. different kinds of cancer there weren't they were never the same one i had a kidney cancer and this kind of like weird adenoid cancer but in my abdomen it was just like it was clearly tied to this this one more and you'll have a full house well yeah i get a sub sandwich i get i get a free uh six inch blt they never go the full 12 but, but yeah so uh yeah, so I'm I'm very lucky genetically in that way and and gifted. You, in fact, this interview you might be able to walk away with a cancer if we shake hands enough. Right?
1: <laughs> I, you know, as we've been talking about this, uh, I, I just keep thinking of the listeners who are hypochondriacs. Mm. <laughs> you know, one of them who has heartburn right now and is like, "Oh, it's cancer! It's cancer! I I need to relax. <laughs> I'm going to turn on the mental illness happy hour." <laughs>
0: <laughs> suicide shoot way up. I hope not. I really please don't kill yourself. It's it's a big pain in the ass for the rest of us.
1: Uh you know, one of the things that I that I want you to talk about is the life changing perspective on thinking that you're going to die and how that changes your priorities and how you feel about things in your life and how you feel about yourself.
0: Um it's you know it's interesting because I do think and by the way, I'm prefacing things saying they're interesting. I'm not sure they're interesting. It's trust me. All right. This is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um I think I think it has evolved. I think initially I was in such a survival state that I went into a place of pretty reckless behavior in the sense that I was kind of like, Well fuck, who cares? This weird kind of nihilism where I was like, I don't give a fuck. Like, I'll, I'll, you know, and I have coworkers who will attest to, they got me, you know, they got me this big uh, birthday cake um, at my job. I was working at a printing lab during the day and they got me this. They all pitched in. Like, I was used to them doing this sort of Safeway sheet cake, you know, where, where they, everyone pitched in a dollar and it was like, all right. But, but they pitched in and they went down to Little Italy and got this enormous, beautiful cake. And they called me in, and there's like 75 people there singing, you know, like for he's a jolly good fellow, and 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 I have very sort of scattered memories of walking into the room, and then I got up onto the table and straddled the cake and sat in it, <laughs> and and, uh, and just that silence in the room of like holy fuck what is wrong with this guy. And it like I would have these moments that were sort of a disconnect where I don't think there was no part of me that was thinking I was being funny. It was a part of me that was like fuck everything. And it was a weird kind of self-destructive thing where people just were I think they were afraid of me. Like I think I think and rightly so. I just I think I was in a very unstable place where I just didn't give a fuck. Why were you still working if you thought you had three months to live? Um, well, no, by this time, by this time, I Oh, was, you'd been was, in remission? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so, okay. so I was, I was in remission, which was also a very fin- interesting phenomenon with people, because people who donated, they were like, you know, 20 bucks to help Glenn out and, you know, whatever. And there was a certain disappointment when I survived. Like, and I know that sounds, that sounds like I'm just being an asshole, but they were, but like, I had a woman stop me in the elevator and said, you know, I gave $500. And it's not even a write-off. You've got to be kidding. Me. No joke. And and I remember looking at her and just going, you know what? Go fuck yourself. I'll give you the five hundred dollars back, which I didn't have. But but it was like, fuck you. And I do think that I think people that go through this on some level, there is some level I don't know how to explain, it. there is some level of disappointment. If you think about even online now when people have these sort of like go fund me campaigns because I'm struggling with, with addiction or I'm struggling with my family getting them back together. When when those people get on their feet, there's a certain level of like the Schadenfreude part of it is just gone. Where it was like, oh, you're better. Well, then what the fuck did I donate to? And I'm not sure what their thinking is, and maybe mm-hmm. I'm completely off by thinking this, but there there seem that seemed to be a theme. You know, I think there's a part of us that is always
1: looking to gauge how good our life is uh by how it compares to other people because mm. that's the easiest thing to gauge it by and it's wildly inaccurate because we have yeah. no idea what people are experiencing inside so we just compare our life circumstances to theirs to that's why i watch hitler documentaries cuz i'm like mm. yeah, i'm a good worse. guy i'm a good guy <laughs> you know i love i got <laughs> i got stuff it's you true, know what though, i mean yeah. I, I their bombs aren't dropping on uh, my neighborhood yes and uh and it's such a selfish,
0: silly way to. to I also love history, but um, do you actually watch these documentaries? Because I'm obsessed with them. Just FYI, like I, yeah, I'm obsessed serial with killer. World War II. Yeah, any anything where these where there's like a tremendous amount of suffering. Yes, or yeah, like I,
1: I find it comforting yeah, me because too. I'm so selfish. I am using it to compare my interesting my life circumstances. I, I can't necessarily. Like there are certain uh, subject matter that that is too depressing for me. Like um, this is going to sound odd, but little girls in beauty pageants pushed into it by their moms. Mm. I can't watch that because it's currently happening,
0: mm-hmm. and it
1: depresses me too much to think that I can't go in there and, and take them. these kids away from their sick families and say you're being brainwashed and this is damaging what they're mm-hmm. what they're doing. But if it happened in the past. I can watch it because it's over and I have no, yeah. I, have, I can't control it. Right, right, right. There's all kinds of crazy going on in my brain. But. It makes sense. Though. My I'm point like. being um, that, that compare, comparing of life mm-hmm. circumstances to gauge where we are, uh, I would imagine has something to, to do with, uh,
0: with yeah. that. Yeah. I, you're probably right. I, I'm sure you're right. Uh, and I, and I um i yeah i th- i think that that's uh i think there's a lot i feel like people would it's like going to aa and being like well fuck i never lost a house i'm good mm-hmm. you know and and uh and, and that being said i've never been happy that somebody i know
1: has cancer so <laughs> yeah. Yeah. or disappointed that they w- you know went into
0: remission right but so. you see like like jimmy carter just was talking about you know like uh being diagnosed and there's this whole thing in the right wing It's just like good good i'm glad he's sick it's like really is that is that where we're at right like a, a president from so many years ago who's clearly like a good-hearted man mm-hmm. we're, we're celebrating this but i did yeah i mean and i don't know how much of that is just the sort of an anonymity of the internet or whatever but um but i i think that that was kind of the first phase of it which did last for a while was a sort of a fuck it attitude i had which has served me well in the sense that it that I think, in a way, it's sort of the sublimation of fear. Um, and I don't fear so many things because of it. What I fear, ironically, is hurting people. Like, I can, I, I struggle anytime I see anybody cry. Like, I have such a strong reaction to it. It doesn't, it could be my worst enemy in the world, but I feel so much. For them, and I feel
1: even if you didn't hurt their feelings and somebody else did, or are you talk about it, when you hurt their feelings it doesn't matter.
0: It could be just a stranger on the street like i I have such a strong um disproportionate, almost like a broken empathy gene where it's like so much so that I just want to carry someone away, like I just want to make that go away, and that wasn't there before you were diagnosed, not to this degree. What do you not think to this that's degree? about um I think because I felt so alone during that initial process, and I really, you know, my my father used to say that depression is this inability to create a future in your mind, and um, and I think in my darkest times when I was sick and really, you know, because it's like talking about it now in hindsight is very different, but like being in that moment, and I don't know how to explain that to people, but if you if someone has told you that, that, that it's ending in like weeks. I don't know if you can wrap your head around that, but you, but it's such a, it's such a terrifying place, but also a weird sort of liberating place as talk, well. Talk more about that because uh, I think we all wonder what, what that's like. It's, um, it's, it's, it's weird because I feel like, um, I've never been ever in a more painful place than feeling like it's over, like feeling f- like, fuck, like I didn't get a chance to do the things I wanted to do. Um, but there was sort of an odd piece that came with it as well. and And it was the actual absence of fear because there's this level of acceptance when everybody is telling you, you know, and I think a lot of cancer patients who are in hospice or experience this feeling where they know it's there, it's coming. And there's no difference from that than being a patient who's, who's told unequivocally by several doctors, you can't come out of this. So um, it's this weird sort of um, coexistence of the worst kind of fear in the world, the loneliest place in the world. And also this feeling of like, well, this is the worst that this is, you know, for those Mm. of us with anxiety and we catastrophize and we look at this, they go like, you know, you ask anyone like, what's the worst that can happen? They go, I die. That's the worst that can happen. So now you're dealing with the worst that can happen. And there is a weird kind of level of acceptance. Um, I I would imagine you don't care about. Whether or not you're in debt, you don't Anything. care. You
1: don't care Anything. about. I'd, if you think- I'd argue. Yeah. It. I'd
0: open more checking. You know, like more yeah. credit cards because because fuck it. Like who? You know, it's not. Mm-hmm. You know, um it, there. It it was. It never stopped hurting, and it still never stopped hurting because I'm feeling it now. But the. So, I was just going to ask: yeah. Was the biggest fear the fear that the that your your
1: last days would be incredibly painful, or was it a just fear that it would be over with? Um,
0: both, I think. I think the fear of it, the fear of the pain, was terrifying, and then just this fear of the unknown. And I think I was in a place where, because of the, ironically, because of the nonprofit stuff that I did and being with people at the very end of their lives. I was noticing this pattern in the very last hours of people's lives, and often last minutes, they would say, if they were lucid enough, "I'm not scared," and they, it gave me this weird kind of piece of like, "Okay, I'm not a religious person at all, but fuck, we we are part of some big thing, and we're just going to get reshuffled here, and things mm-hmm. go, and we we will reshuffle somewhere else somehow, and." I don't think I understood it the way I understand it now because I work with patients at the very end of life now and I see the same thing happen. Um, and there's definitely more peace now because it, it is, I've never seen it not happen with someone in the last minutes. And we're, these are people in their twenties, you know, like this, they're not, you know, this is an 85 year olds How many, pe-
1: how many people have you been alongside when they pass?
0: Uh, last year, nine uh this year this year uh probably three but two suicides uh and one suicide actually like three days ago which was oh, dude, really I'm so sorry fucked up my, my brain in a very real way um and that have been kind of struggling with <laughs> well obviously you weren't there when they died right no but i it was weird cuz i was uh, t- this happened i guess 4 days ago but 2 days ago i was listening to a voicemail that he left me which was like just sobbing and saying like there's no point in me being here and i kept saying to him you have a curable cancer you have a cancer at very least that can be a chronic disease
1: Oh, so these suicides were cancer related
0: cancer related yes um and then the previous year i had a parent of a of of a kid that died kill themselves and um and this patient that was a few days ago i was listening to yesterday I was listening to his voicemail and i'm like why am i doing this to myself because these were the last words he had uh to me and i remember saying to him like listen I work so fucking hard to stay alive. I, I have so many reasons to not want to work so fucking hard to stay alive. But like, I'm telling you for a person who has been in the darkest place in the world, it will. Tomorrow is a new day as, as trite and fucking bullshitty as that sound. It's not cheerleader. Like I'm telling you, if you've ever dealt with depression, you know that even in the worst day you wake up, even if, You only have five good minutes the next day it is those five good minutes that are enough of a fucking daylight for you to go all right maybe there's more to it and i in the long term i do see people come out of it in a very real and wonderful way so i just said to him like like hang on for me like i fight so fucking hard i wasn't supposed to see my son live past three months now he's driving a car like and um and I have these moments when I look at him, and and um, I like think this happened the other day, like I was just looking at him sitting on the couch, and and it was like I could see the little baby that he was at one point, like just in his profile. And it was like I was feeling, I was going to sound so fucked up, but, but I, was, I was like I was feeling, I was feeling like all time at once, like I, like it all felt like it all happened just now, that entire progression. And before I was diagnosed and before he was born, I had a dream about having a son and like throwing the football around, which was a funny dream considering I couldn't throw a fucking football to save my <laughs> life. So I was like, I'm great. I'm dreaming someone else's life. Apparently, <laughs> like, great. I get this tall jock of a son, but my son is six two and it's like. He's definitely not a jock. Uh, Neither of us could throw a football. But the fact that I see that now is something I never thought I would see. And it's enough where I feel like I can tell people when they're deep in it that it's almost impossible to see when you're that deep in it. That if you just kind of hang on, like, let's just get through today. Let's just get through the next hour. And... I didn't think he would take his life because he had two young daughters and i said they'll never be okay they'll never be okay so you can't do that for them if you love them that much you can't do that for them and his mother sent me an email yesterday that was one of the most amazing beautiful things ever received in my life saying that that he would have died she believes he would have taken his life much much sooner had i not been there and she said you made him happy in ways i've never seen him happy and you gave him hope in many ways and she's like so if there's any part of you and i never even implied this to her but she's like if there's any part of you that feels like you're you didn't do enough i i hope you let that go because you did more like i don't get paid Right? So I do voiceover and I use that money so that I can do this stuff pro bono So I'm just putting in hours and hours and hours of, of writing and texting and calling with people Who are fucking terrified because I just want to say to them I don't have the answer, but I can tell you if we can get through today every we just just buy time because if you buy time the way medicine goes it changes had I been diagnosed a year earlier, when I did, there was no clinical trial. I would have been dead. So just by the time, and and I will fucking help you by that time. And it, it eclipses my life in a way that ruins it in some ways, but in a way it also enhances it in a way that I can, that I never want to walk away from. That I love so much.
1: How does it ruin it in a way?
0: I think because it, um, because it affects me so profoundly like I just I find myself getting numb especially with suicide stuff because um I think because I myself went through that um and it's funny I wrote a book about this entire first thing and then I'm uh, I just finished a second book but in the second book I talk about a suicide attempt on my part which I was terrified to write and uh, put in, took out, put in, took out. Um and I think ultimately I landed on leaving it in a much trunk a more, more truncated version only because I thought, well fuck. Um maybe maybe that sort of emptiness and feeling of like like abject hopelessness that I felt in that moment that I tried really hard to articulate might resonate with someone enough for them to just get them through another day. I would hope so. I hope so. That is my hope.
1: Was it related to your being uh, sick? sick? Yeah. Because
0: um, because, was it with
1: your first cancer?
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. And I just, um, I think, um, I think I just didn't want, I think having done the nonprofit stuff and seeing people thin out and die in a way that was just like, I can't put my family through that and i just thought so it,
1: was, it wasn't about your fear of
0: experiencing pain no or trying to take control it was i just wanted well, to end it because i didn't want them to suffer and it seems to be a running theme in my life in and a weird and
1: way and yet now you have the perspective to know that's the last thing your family wants is yes, for you to take exactly your life you know the the thing that mental illness and loss of hope and all these other things share Um, as, as I hear people talk about them, is it just completely changes our perspective. And the thing I urge people all the time is to put the crystal ball away. You know, I struggle with pulling the crystal ball out and thinking, where am I going to be in five years? And I don't see this lining up. And, you know, this is, uh, I'm going to be getting older. And so this is going to start nose diving. And it's the worst thing you can do to yourself because five years ago, I would have never predicted that I'd be doing what I'm doing today. Yes. So why would I try to predict where I'm going to be five years from now? Yes. And then how successful my, are you at that? Yeah and, then, yeah. and then base my happiness on how I think I'm going to be five years from now
0: my present right. day happiness. Right, 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 it's, right. It's the
1: one of the worst things you can do to yourself.
0: Do you find do you find you've had luck trying to put that thing away? Yes. Yeah.
1: But that's because I go to support groups 3 times a week. Yeah. I talk to people. Um I hear other people share the same thing. Uh yeah, I've gotten much much better at just living uh in in today, and mm-hmm. not worrying about the future, sometimes I can err a little bit too much on the um, you know don't make enough plans, mm-hmm. but I would rather on the side of err on the side of not being far sighted
0: enough than being completely obsessed about the future, yeah yeah it's interesting that um, I was watching this thing on 60 Minutes where it was like they were interviewing this uh, one of the this SEAL Team 6 guys and the, and uh, he was talking about they were scaling this God knows how huge rock you know this 500 foot sheer cliff or whatever and he said it was the middle of the night and he had trained forever for it and this was the big mission and he said and he got midway up and he just was paralyzed because he's like holy fuck I can't go on anymore. I can't. I don't know how. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to put my hands. I don't know where to grab. And he said, and his whoever was running the show over there kind of repelled over to him and said, "Okay, here's what I want you to do. Nothing more than three feet." He's like three feet up, three feet up, three feet across. He's like, "Look where where can you put your hand? Put there." But he's like, "I just want you to stay in that three foot world. Just stay in that three foot world." Because you will get to the top, but you just don't look beyond that. And I'm not sure he meant for it to be as profound as it was, but I think about that all the time. Especially when I'm knee-deep in a certain level of depression or anxiety where I just go, you know what? Three feet. Just stay in that three feet. Because I can envision, especially an anxious brain, you know, you can take that for miles in a thousand different directions. And I think... In a weird way like i was not a believer at all in cognitive behavioral therapy but i I started cognitive behavioral therapy um in 2011 because my son was in the hospital and there was some risk that he wasn't going to survive and i was having all this sort of ptsd of my dad dying and my son was now had 105 fever and a pulse of like 180 and it was going on day four day five and they couldn't sort of get rid of this sort of sepsis that was in his abdomen and i was sleeping one hour a day maybe and i was just in this crazy this sort of crazy state um and i he i brought him to therapy to kind of deal with some of it because it was traumatic for him He was in the hospital for almost four weeks, which is, doesn't sound like much, but it is a lot when you think you're getting out the next day and suddenly like, Mm -hmm. you know, now you're having drains put in everywhere and you're 11 years old and it's, so um, I went into therapy with him to talk about his anxiety and I remember saying to her, you know what, I remember being in the hospital and if he didn't make it, I was completely okay. And not in a depressed way, but I was completely okay with being done with it. Like, I felt like I lived, I I did the best I could. Like, I made it this far. I I did with my life what I wanted to do with my life. And I'm okay with being over with it because I can't imagine life without this child. And I'm I'm not a kid person, per se. So... Um, and I, I usually gravitate to people who don't like kids, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I'm not a kid person. But I have this this crazy attachment to this boy because he's such a sweet, like he's such a he's this giant heart of a boy. And even at 16 years old, there's he doesn't have that 16 year old shittiness. He's just like a yeah. sweet kid. Um, but I was like, if he doesn't make it, I'm I'm good because I don't know what more I want. And that therapist was like, I think you should probably talk to someone. And I'm like, I haven't been in therapy in years and way before I got sick. So I had all, I had f- essentially four cancers unprocessed. <laughs> and she's like, I think you should be talking to someone. And I started seeing someone and he he said, I do cognitive behavioral therapy. And it's something that my mother as a therapist practiced. And I thought it's fucking bullshit. Like, do you really think that changing sort of patterns of behavior is going to affect your life in a way, like you won't be depressed or you're to be depressed less or less anxious? I was like, this is bull. It's just bullshit. And I met with him, and he started explaining things to me in a sort of a different way, in in the medical way, that of the sort of rebuilding of these neural pathways, rewiring the brain. Yeah, yeah, and and when i i really thought about it i'm like yeah i'm fucked up because these old tapes have played forever in my brain and maybe if i if i make a new path if mm-hmm. i if i you know write a new script yeah yeah that maybe maybe there is and i'm like you know what i'm fucking i'm open i'm open to this i don't know i'm skeptical but i'm open and you know, over the course of that first year, the the amount of change was so dramatic for me that I was like, "Fuck, this really does work in a way that I think psychoanalysis can't ever work," because so much of it is behavioral stuff, and you know, and exposure therapy, and and this sort of quieting of your brain in a way is like, oh, it just seemed like bullshit to me, and but I was so open to it. And I think the only way therapy works is if you're open to the possibility of changing. I, uh, I agree. Cause if you go in there with your, every time with your arms
1: folded and yeah. I mean, skepticism is certainly going to be there in therapy because yeah. most of us have trust and vulnerability issues yeah. <laughs> that wind Huge. up there. Huge. Um, but yeah, I, I think um That's a that's a great point. Just being open to the possibility uh, that change either within or without uh, outside of you uh,
0: is possible. It it can really improve your your chances. Yeah. I I mean, I I agree. And I think uh, jumping back to what you were saying in terms of like, how it's how it's changed my life in that way. I do think I do think that it has made me less afraid of so many things.
1: What are, give me, give me some things you're less afraid um, of now.
0: I think most kinds of rejection I'm not afraid of. Like I, um, I, I think my, I, I kind of think I'm not afraid of the big stuff, and I'm terrified of the little stuff. And while this may not sound little, but this sort of idea of being seen which to me seems enormous, is the thing that probably scares me the most of like feeling fraudulent and feeling like, um feeling like just being a flawed kind of odd individual in a weird way and being rejected for that. And, um, you know, just like, like I'm I'm covered in tattoos but tattoos are even though there's a sad story behind them but the <laughs> isn't there a sad story behind every <laughs> tattoo <laughs> for sure it's probably not the same it probably doesn't involve monster monster energy drinks the, the way most of them do i think uh yeah this one this one's a little more profound but uh but i think i i am i sort of do have built my exterior that way to sort of keep people away from that vulnerability and part of the work that i do in therapy now is is trying to to be true to the person i am that sort of little broken kid on the inside which i still very much am and kind of only am um and just being rejected for that and i think that like the, the comedy was the the protection mm-hmm. for that you know okay. like um for so long and and it still is for most comics that I know but I also find them the most interesting people Mm -hmm. as well um yeah I don't know where I'm going with that but um but I think that uh um I think I have not ever been afraid to leave a job I've not been afraid to leave a relationship I've not been afraid to um, to sort of risk bigger um, human relationship breakdowns in terms of speaking my mind. I don't ev- I don't ever speak in a way that's disrespectful to people or hurtful to people. But I but I will absolutely not hesitate to to be direct. I think, um, and then I think the people that I feel the most for I'm terrified of it you know like because I think I think I got so disconnected in this army of one with being sick that I just never I was never able to reconnect with the world in a weird way and I feel like I feel like no matter I think that's the worst part of all of this in a weird way is that I detached from the world in a way that I feel like blunts me from having joy and connection.
1: You know, the irony is you couldn't allow yourself to let somebody be who you are to other people who are sick. Yes. You need to let somebody like you into your life to care for you and to not worry about being shamed or engulfed or pitied or Mm. any of that stuff because do you do you pity other people when they're you know do you engulf them do you make them feel guilty do you you don't do any of those things and there are other people that are as um that just want to do the same for you yeah i mean look at how much you get out of letting people um yeah uh, you get out of helping others
0: yeah. Um, and it's weird because like when I listen to you and like, I'm always sort of awed by the fact that you have, that you have uh, relinquished that kind of control. Um, I was listening to an old episode where you were talking about having a group of friends over where you just sort of broke down and that they showed up for you in that way. And then I remember thinking as I was listening to that, I was like, I don't think I could ever do that. Make no mistake, it is hard for me to do that. Does it feel genuine, though, to you, or does it feel artificial in any way?
1: It, it doesn't feel artificial. It. Um, I think what you might be referring to was when um, all of that mom stuff yes. came up. Mm-hmm. Um, I called uh, Janet Varney and uh, Gray Delisle, who are two friends of mine, And I just needed um, – I just needed some – they're both really compassionate, kind of tender people, and I just needed that tenderness. You Mm -hmm. know, there was – I was getting support from my guy friends, but I just needed some of that maternal kind of – and, yeah. And we sat on the couch, and they both sat on either side of me, and they held my hands, and I just cried. And, um, you know, I just stroked my arms, and they – talked to me and it was it felt it felt awesome but if i hadn't done all the work that i'd done in my support groups a i would have never been able to identify my pain mm-hmm. um and certainly not validate it but i would have never been able to reach out and say i need to i need a,
0: a good i need a shoulder to cry on uh today um did you ever feel like in that moment that these people might be you know and again i'm projecting i think my own fear of it Mm -hmm. but like did you ever feel like in those moments that that what if this isn't real no no because
1: my experience that's not to say that that thought didn't ever just fleetingly pop into my head but I'd had enough deep meaningful conversations with them as people um, about our own issues and stuff that I knew um, I knew that they genuinely uh, liked me and we had fun together and we were mm-hmm. creative together mm-hmm. um, so, so there was that intimacy there was that creative intimacy mm-hmm. and Janet and I uh, you know we go way back she was uh, uh uh, co-host uh we were co-host together on a TV show for um i think six seven years and doing improv is a very intimate thing as you yeah. know and and we would travel together and make each other laugh on the plane and and you know talk about whatever we were going through that was difficult so there was a there was a track record of um stuff um i don't think i could call up somebody that i don't know that well and open open up to them Mm -hmm. or say you know i need a shoulder to cry on so it's it's usually trusted friends or somebody that i have a track record with in a support group Mm -hmm. where you know i i know i'm not going to be rejected
0: or made made Mm -hmm. to feel foolish yeah you know And I mean, and I think like that, that idea of shaming, I think until very recently, I didn't realize how I would argue maybe the most powerful thing that a human can deal with in my personal opinion, like the more I sort of look at my own life and, and avoidance of things. And and it's all, it's all about feeling ashamed. Like The,
1: the lengths we will go to, to avoid anticipated
0: shame is, uh, cannot be overstated cannot be overstated yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yes and I, I think i can relate to that like i am I'm, I'm amazed at the architecture i can build in my life to mm-hmm. avoid feeling that kind of embarrassment mm-hmm. or shame um and in a way it makes me sad because it feels like it's elementary and it, it almost why can't why can't i do that i do find that the most interesting people struggle the most with it mm-hmm. um but m- You know, I. You think about uh, you know politicians. Like you wouldn't want a politician who wants to be a politician because, you know, it just seems like uh, it seems like a fundamental personality flaw—the inability to sort of see your own grossness. You know, this weird kind of and ambition and non-self awareness. You know, like the lack of shame is so repulsive to me that I almost feel like. I'm okay with it I guess in a way if if I'm not that guy, you know. Yeah. Um but I think I think I'm not where you are and I wanna be. Like I think I wanna be at a place where there's a group of people that I feel like I could let go. Support group. Yeah.
1: Support group. You but
0: what kind of support group I guess is kind
1: of the I think it will. Uh, I think a cancer survivor uh, support group yeah. would be a great. I mean, you would bring so much to a group like that. Yeah. You would bring so much. You know, there's. It occurred to me uh, a year or two into my first experience with support group. I remember one night feeling like, well, you know, I don't feel like I want to get high tonight. I, I don't. I don't need to go to a meeting. And then the thought occurred to me. Well, maybe a, a meeting needs me. Maybe mm. there's somebody mm. there that needs to hear my story. Mm. That that's going to keep them coming back. That that is going to be. And dude, you have a lot of inspiration mm. inside you to share with other people. So you're that, that. to me is what's so beautiful about support groups is we get out of them what, what, what we put into them. Yeah, and um, I, I think. Yeah. I would love to check back in with you in about 6 months after you <laughs> gave them a shot yeah. cuz I think you would you would you would get so much out of it and you would find the people that you can be really vulnerable with yeah. because when you get in a room full of people who you know have lived through the most painful things that you've lived through mm-hmm. um there's a shorthand there that uh, takes away a lot of the fear of rejection. Mm. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. That makes perfect
0: sense, though. Yeah. yeah.
1: That's what's so great about, about support groups. Yeah. And to be able to laugh about it with people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I know. For sure. For sure. And I mean, and I think that's, a, that's true of a lot of the patient stuff that I do. Um, and... And I don't, and in a weird way, because I came so close to dying and didn't die, there's almost a part of me that feels like, uh, inauthentic and that I can't, I can't prepare them for the full experience. You know, I can prepare the people that love them for it because I have been through that many times. Um, and, and it's, it's a weird thing to talk about because, um, because, Like I I think, anytime there's a discussion about uh, depression or mental illness and stuff, there's there's this sort of absence of of beauty because it sounds like bullshit. It sounds like well, you know, like easy for you to say Mm because of this or X or Y, but there's no part of me that doesn't know exactly how fucking low you can be, um, and how it is impossible to see anything beyond that. But I. Also got lucky enough to be on the other end of it, where even now in the middle of what I'm dealing with now, um, I'm in a state of a very significant fear. But I'm in such a different place this time around, even though this cancer that may or may not uh, fully bloom, and I'm hoping it doesn't.
1: What kind of cancer is it?
0: It's called multiple myeloma. It's a blood cancer Mm -hmm. that right now there is no cure for so i'm sort of staring down the barrel of these markers that keep increasing which is like all the signs i don't want to see so i'm sort of dealing with this um this middle ground that is the most difficult part like i i i I, I did chemotherapy with this guy actually this will be you'll probably be the only person who will get this reference but i did chemo with this guy who was a prisoner in joliet prison Mm mm-hmm. um, Just outside Chicago, outside Chicago. And um, he he was a piece of shit. Now, I'm not going not gonna to lie. I mean, like uh, there's no part of me that felt bad for him. But it was interesting because you get stuck with whoever you get stuck with during chemo. And he used to tell me about this ritual that they had, which um, they referred to as the rodeo in Joliet and which I thought was an unbelievably clever play on words for for prisoners but whatever the case is it was this ritual where any, any new inmate that was admitted to the population they they had this understanding among the group excuse me that um, the idea was to give that person three days of nothing like safety like everything that they might have thought prison was wrong it's just routine there's ne- maybe an occasional fight, but nothing. But with the intention of on that third day, finding that person, surrounding that person, and then beating the living fuck out of that person. And then they would, to the point where once it was broken up, they would let that person get up and walk away and think, holy shit, I guess that was initiation. It's over. And they wouldn't let you get all the way across the prison yard before they would circle you and do it again. And uh, and I remember listening to the story going, Jeez, oh, this is a fucking blast. Thanks. I'm so so happy to be <laughs> Can't, S- cancer walled fast enough. <laughs> exactly. I was so grateful that I was dying. <laughs> it's like uh like Sir Walter Raleigh over here. Like how did I get so lucky? So, um but I remember when I sat down. To write this book and I wasn't writing a book to publish it because I was in the middle of um, my third cancer that also was not looking like I was gonna make it so I was writing this just for my son and I was looking back through all these journals and remembering this prisoner and I realized that that the rodeo and Juliet really was the perfect metaphor for this disease and I think in many ways the perfect metaphor for so many diseases which is this feeling of like once you feel you're safe and I think it's true of depression too you feel like it's safe, but you're still always wondering at what point is the bottom going to drop out? At what point are you going to get to that point where everyone surrounds you and beats the shit out of you again? And when are you safe? Mm -hmm. Is this only happened twice? Does this happen for the entire time, the full 30 years you're in prison? Mm -hmm. You have no idea. But this idea of when this shoe is going to drop, living in that space, in that panicked space, is exactly what Anyone with any disease, I believe, that can come or go or ebb and flow, um, and I think it's true of of, of every disease, um, where the where you're never fully cured is that sort of anxiety place of like, when the fuck am I going to get beaten again?
1: Yeah, that's. I, I feel that way about depression. When I'm out of the woods, uh, I feel like it's a. I've I've changed addresses that a stalker. Doesn't know the new address yet, but when it comes back, it's like a doorbell rings and I open it and remember me, yeah. and it's
0: just oh God no. Yes, yes, God no. Perfectly put. I think that that, um, you know, and ironically, I actually had a. I had a stalker. Why not? <laughs> of course, because right? right, God was like, you know what? All right, four cancers. You know what? Fuck him. Give him a stalker. Give him a- so that he never feels safe ever. Like have somebody circle his house twenty four hours a day. Um, but but I think that that is such an apt metaphor, and that I think you just are kind of there's a part of you that's always waiting for that place to come, and I think I struggle very much now with finding that that sort of like comfort in waiting between tests or waiting of like, when is this going to turn? And will this be the last one? Will this be the end? I don't know, but I can tell you that now the fifth go around in this rodeo for sure that I feel like um, I am in such a different place optimistically, meaning that I understand the science a little more, but less so more about the fact that I feel like I've survived, so when you've survived the worst, the kind of the, you're kind of not scared in a weird way, even though it would be a lie to say, "I'm not scared, of course, I'm scared, like I, I'm, I don't want to die, I don't you know, and I don't want this to be over, and I don't want to have some of the amazing moments and you know and and the feelings of falling in love and all those things like, I don't want to lose all that. But there's a part of me that's like, that's the worst that can happen. And you were almost there so many times. So what else is there? So fuck it, you know, and not in a self-destructive way, but fuck it in a way of like, eh, you go do it, you go do it. And uh, so I think in, in that way, um, you know, getting back to your point, which actually I'm, I do want to, I do want to address this issue because you're talking about listeners who are like hypochondriacs, by the way, who I deal with all the time, mm-hmm. um, going, holy shit, I'm tired too. Like they just start piecing this thing together or they go, oh yeah, heartburn or I, Um, I, I, I will put myself out there that if, if you are experiencing any of those things where you aren't sure and you just want a, 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 uh, a sort of rough gestalt opinion on that send me an email because uh 99.9% of the time it's nothing but i, I know enough about the disease now especially doing clinical advocacy mm-hmm. stuff that i do um and i i know enough about it that i can probably put your mind at ease but but it is interesting the first question people ask you when you said you you've survived cancer they're like what were what were your symptoms at first and you're like, Well just uh you know, I, I felt tired and they're like, Oh Jesus, I feel tired <laughs> You know, and it, you know, and it's like uh I could take the opportunity to fuck with them and just go with their <laughs> basic life feelings that we all feel just to drive them crazy. But um but it is a you're looking for clusters of symptoms. So yeah. if there's anybody out there that's spiralling at the mm-hmm. moment, uh, i I'm telling you I'm a lifeline yeah. so. I, I when I would wake up, I would dread going to work <laughs> exactly uh, I would look at sunday cake. nights sucked. I would look at <laughs> cake I would want to eat it <laughs> I'd watch I, porn I'd feel a certain sense of arousal I in the it's. in the loinal region. If you're experiencing any of that, that is cancer for sure <laughs> <laughs> that's what we call stage five cancer exactly you are days away from death. <laughs> Don't be scared. <laughs>
1: Oh, dude, it's so great talking to you. Do you do you my want to team. give us a couple of fears and 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 loves? Sure,
0: let me. Yeah, Are we going to fear off and no off?
1: Yeah, it might it might be uh, mostly you, but I'll uh, okay. I'll jump in there.
0: <clears throat> I fear that uh, people will see how broken I am underneath my skin and regret ever getting to know me at all. Wow, that sounds so off base,
1: so completely <laughs> off base. You are like. Such a beautiful man. Oh. You are just such a beautiful... Um, you just have a big fucking soul. Just a big soul. Here's what I don't
0: like about you. <laughs> All right. I'm not crying because I'm not a pussy. My father said I'm not a pussy, right? Oh, actually, no. Um, I fear being seen for who I am without my defenses up like looking behind the curtain of the least powerful Oz
1: you this last hour and a half hour and 15 minutes you haven't had your defenses up and that was my impression of you and I think I'm pretty much like an average person in terms of what I like and don't like in people. So get those defensive down defenses down at least around safe people. Yes. Thank you. An
0: important qualification. Very important. Yes. Um, I fear finally losing the fight with cancer and missing out what on what I suspect will be the best years of my life. I fear that no human relationship I have is genuine and can and will be taken away from me at any moment. I fear that my son will never know how hard I fought to be around for him and that he will never fully understand the enormous place he holds in my heart. I fear being caught in a lie and never being given the space for people to understand it was always only an attempt to prevent someone from feeling pain. Well, here's some things that I love. Let's do that. I love hot fudge.
1: (laughs) I do too. That's my favorite Hot Fudge and marshmallow on a Sunday. That's like my favorite. My favorite thing.
0: (laughs) I kept it light in the love part. I love sports. I I I love knowing that no matter how horrific things get in my life, there is a tomorrow that can turn it all around. This I know for sure. I love that I've been able to find beauty in death and that I have found it in the eyes of people who were most scared to die and only right before they did. I love to just fucking laugh because it maybe is the only time in my life when I feel genuinely present. I love moments like we had during this conversation
1: when we were able to laugh about shit that was really dark, that those are some of my favorite moments in in my life
0: me too me too and 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 i have to tell you that like uh in many people it frustrates me because i know it's their way of avoiding feeling but i look in you and i know that you're coming from a place of adding light which uh is very safe place and a very loving thing and so i took it as such
1: you know i I like to say that laughter is great in addition to vulnerability not in Mm. place in place of Mm. it and i feel like in our conversation because there was so much vulnerability it's like it's just the cherry on the on the top you know
0: i love that i really do um i love that no matter how desperate and alone and terrified i ever feel the sound of a dog eating chips will instantly turn that around (laughs) it is the greatest thing in the world
1: (laughs) i i love slash am annoyed by uh when i come home from hockey i do this stretch where i lay on my back on the ground and i put one leg up on the door frame and the other leg flat on the ground through it to stretch my hamstrings Mm -hmm. And Herbert will use that time to lick the insides of my ears. And I always like it for about the first five seconds. But after 25 seconds of just going to town inside my ears. Your tumescence monitor is going off. It's just, it just starts to get gross and ridiculous after a while, but it always, it, it just always, and as soon as I lay down, he starts to get all excited because he's like, oh, I get to lick his ears. It's just what so, kind of dog is it's, it? Oh, he's a shelter mutt, part oh. chihuahua, oh, part, uh, I'm not sure what the other part is. But Crazy dog lover. Yeah, he's he's awesome.
0: <laughs> uh, I love being surprised by how beautiful things are when I feel small. I love the feeling of falling in love, that that feeling when you look in that person's eyes and feel like you are experiencing time all at once.
1: I love being at a restaurant where you're seated at a counter that is right on top of the kitchen. It's an open kitchen, and you mm-hmm. can watch them actually preparing not only your food, but other people's food. I just love, I love a show when I'm waiting for really the food to get there, especially, you know, cooking. Yeah. That's why I love like Benihana and restaurants. I like love that. Benihana. I yeah. like,
0: I'm not ashamed to say it. I, I, yeah. I, I will come out of the closet right now and say, I do love it. I <laughs> do great. probably for that same reason. Um, yeah. So that's it for me.
1: Glenn Rockowitz thank you uh so thank much you. and if if people want to uh, get a hold of you is there an email or a web um,
0: address sure uh they can they can email me at Glenn Rockowitz G-L-E-N-N actually let me change that they can email me at Glenn G-L-E-N-N at changeitback.org um because that's the nonprofit that I do for the clinical advocacy and um they can follow me on Twitter at just a ride for those of you who are Bill Hicks fans know that that is yeah. a reference. Um, but I will warn you that it is mostly dick jokes. Uh, all I do is really write jokes on Twitter, which is, which is <laughs> a, a perfect a, form. I have, for to, jokes. I have to, yeah, it's, it's the only exor or that I get in that, that way. So I do, I do love it. Uh, and if people, that first book that you put out, what's yeah. the name of that? The, it's called Rodeo in Joliet, and uh, you can get it on Amazon. And it's, uh, if you're on Amazon Prime, you can read it for free. Although I would love it if you just buy the paperback for six bucks. It's only six bucks. I haven't eaten for weeks. So if, if just <laughs> one of you could just buy one fucking copy, it would be great. <laughs> Thanks, Glenn. Thank you so much.
1: You know, I feel a, a connection to almost every guest that I, that I record, but I really, really felt a uh, connection. Uh, talking to to glenn really enjoyed it um feels like a friend that uh that i 've had forever even though that was the first time we met and um let 's keep him in our thoughts as he uh takes on this next uh, health challenge that uh, that he's dealing with um i want to tell you guys about a sponsor that we have we uh we talked about them last week uh it's a smart app called start and uh any of you that take antidepressants, you know what a roller coaster it can be. Trying to remember uh, what you felt like before you started taking them, um, wanting to know whether or not what you're experiencing as you in- initially start taking them is normal. Is it an acceptable side effect? Is it something that means you should get off it? Um, how did you feel six months into taking the antidepressant? It's I always forget all of these things. And, uh, This new app called Start uh, is really a great way to to deal with all of these um, difficult issues that come up with taking antidepressants. Um, iodine, which is a digital health company, uh, has launched this mobile app, uh, which I said is called Start. And, uh, it shows you what to expect. Uh, it checks in with you about your mood, your goals that you have, issues that you're having. Um, basically the stuff that, that matters to you in trying to, to get better. Uh, every two weeks, you'll get a personalized report so that you can reflect on your progress without having to rely on your, shitty memory my memory is so terrible and after six weeks starts helps you uh decide if the medication is working for you and if not you'll get some options that you can discuss with your doctor because if you're like me i always make mental notes and then i go to my psychiatrist appointment and i completely forget what all my mental notes are um and finally, uh, iodine works with foundations and communities, not pharma. That's an important distinction. Their goal is not to sell more antidepressants. It's to help you find the one that works and make sure that it works as effectively for you as possible. Uh, Start is free to download, and to get started, go to iodine.com slash mental pod, and uh, feel free to pass it along to someone who might find it helpful. Before I take it out with uh, some surveys, I want to remind you guys there's a couple of different ways to support the show. Um, You can support us financially by going to the website, mentalpod.com, and making a one time PayPal donation, or my favorite, becoming a monthly donor, which is hugely, hugely important to this show. Um, We don't have much of a budget, and there's a lot of things I'd like to do to expand the show, and they're just not possible with the uh, the amount of money that we're bringing in right now so um you can sign up for as little as five bucks a month to become a recurring monthly donor and it means the world to me um you can support us financially by using our amazon excuse me i've been on the verge of uh, yawning slash burping for the last 30 seconds. Uh, you can support us uh financially if you're going to buy something at Amazon. Enter through the search portal on our homepage, uh, right-hand side, about halfway down. And that way, if you buy something, Amazon will give us a couple of nickels and it doesn't cost you anything. Um, You can also support us non-financially by going to iTunes and writing something nice about us and giving us a good rating that boosts us in the iTunes rankings, which brings more listeners uh, to the show, which is is what we want. Um, And you can support us uh, non-financially by spreading the word through social media. Uh, That really, really helps bring more listeners. Um, Enough of my yakking. Let's get to the surveys. This is from the, hold on, sip a tea. Sip a tea. I haven't told you guys about my newest addiction. The uh, It's going to be over briefly, but uh, Netflix has a new series called Narcos. It's based on uh, the Medellin. Uh, it's actually about the Medellin uh, cartel in the 80s and 90s. And, uh, oh my Lord, well-written, well-acted, well-directed, and uh, just compelling. Dark as hell. Um, but, you know, You know me, you know I love the dark. It's so comforting. Um, All right, this is from the What Has Helped You survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Little SP. Uh, Her issues are anxiety and depression. And what helped her, she writes, "'A few years ago, I took a mindfulness-based stress reduction class. One of the most powerful things I learned was that I was not my thoughts. For some reason, I'd gone through life believing that each thought was a reflection of who I was. Now I know our brains just constantly shit out thoughts willy-nilly. Thank you, brain. That is a huge thing for the, the first time I realized that. My first therapist told me that. I was so relieved. I was so relieved. Uh, this is from the Awfulsome Moments uh, survey uh, shared by a woman who calls herself, it's no wonder I am fucked up. Uh she writes, My mother sometimes worked weekends as a nurse, probably to avoid interacting with me and my brother. My father often took us over to visit his aunts and uncles. Oh, I'm sorry. My mother sometimes worked weekends as a nurse, probably to avoid interacting with me and my brother. My father often took us over to visit his aunt and uncle. I met my great uncle Tim when I was eight, and it was platonic love at first sight for both of us. He was the only relative who was truly kind to me. I was ignored and or treated meanly by the rest. Uh, I was a small child and Tim was slender, so we spent many hours lounging in his easy chair watching TV. Many, many years later, my mother told me she thought Tim may have been molesting me. I was shocked to the core, and when I asked why she never asked me and why she continued to allow the visit, she said, I didn't want to rock the boat. (laughs) Thanks, Mom. You're a peach. I didn't want to rock the boat. If the boats are rocking, don't come knocking. Uh, this is from the Being Hospitalized survey filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself too crazy for love. Um, Why we were hospitalized, I was 13. I was a habitual runaway. I was being raised by my abusive grandmother because my mother had recently committed suicide and I had never met my father. I was abused my entire life, emotionally, physically, and sexually by pretty much anyone that crossed my drug addict, alcoholic mother's past Path. I also had started a self-harm and experiment with drugs. My grandmother said she was clueless as to why I couldn't be, quote, good and took my behavior very personally and would beat me and verbally abuse me. She worked for our police department, so when I tried to, quote, tell, I got told I was lying and got in even more trouble. Anyway, the state committed me, I think because my grandmother asked. Describe your experience. There were about seven other girls on my unit. I was on the locked unit since I was a high runaway risk. The staff were underpaid and overworked babysitters for lack of a better word. There was one psychiatrist who looked and acted like John Arbuckle that we would see well I didn't even know who John Arbuckle is that we would see while being admitted. Uh, one counsellor that we chatted with weekly, two staff persons that watched over us and one r n to pass out meds. I stared there for one year. Most stayed there only about three months unless they were a ward of the state. They kicked me out because they said they couldn't help me. That basically I was too stubborn and didn't want to do the work. They were right. I hated being told what to do. I don't have any strong feelings about the place itself. I didn't feel safe there because of the other children. I had to fight a lot, and I felt abandoned by my grandmother. The best thing I took from there was learning to ride a horse. They had a horse program for a few months in the summer. We learned to take care of our, quote, own horse, and and we learned to ride. It was not only the highlight of my year's stay, but probably a highlight of my life. All in all, no, I don't believe it helped. I came away with more issues like anger, abandonment, and a new love for LSD. Sending you some love. Boy, that was an abandoning childhood you had. I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. You just had it piled on. Uh... This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself Anxious Composer. And about his depression, he writes, It's not that I feel bad, it's that I don't feel anything. About his PTSD, I mention my parents and immediately look to the doors to see if they're coming in to scream at me. I'm 35 years old. Same sentence filled out by a... um, An agender person who calls themselves B about their depression. Uh, No matter what, I will always be a terrible person, and no matter how much I sleep, I'm always tired about their borderline personality disorder. My emotions and opinions of people change so rapidly that I can't tell who I am or what I want about their autism spectrum disorder. Every one of my senses is constantly overwhelmed, and no one cares enough to listen to me talk about what I'm hyper-focusing on. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by Creep Show. She writes, I used to be the human resources manager at my father's company. We were on an off-site in Miami. We had chartered a boat, and we were on the ocean, which was quite choppy. I got seasick and was one of two people to begin throwing up over the side of the boat. I had recently had my first child, and apparently the birth had impacted my ability to control my bladder while vomiting. Every time I heaved, I leaked urine so that my entire pant legs were drenched. Luckily, my father eventually asked the captain to turn around, and luckily I had a long shawl that I was able to wrap around my waist to cover my legs. Later that night, at a company dinner, I was talking to some employees and to my boss about how awful the boat trip had been and about how sorry... Uh, they were that I'd gotten sick. Later, I found out that my father had announced to anyone in earshot that we needed to turn the boat around because I was seasick, and then to impress the need to do so upon his partner, he threw in that I was also pissing myself. Fun. (laughs) Thank you for that. You know I love a good, awfulsome moment. Who doesn't? This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself Cardinal Rose about her um picking at her cuticles. She writes, uh picking at my cuticles on my fingers till they bleed allows me to breathe through whatever I'm stressing about. About her codependency. I feel shitty for putting myself last in everyone's life, especially my uh with my mom, but I don't but I know if I don't, I'll feel shitty for being selfish. And I got to believe that that is that was ingrained in you that you were shamed as a child for having needs and it's so hard to silence that that voice in your brain there's some good uh support groups for codependency though Snapshot from her life. Every month I go through a week of several emotional highs and lows due to my menstrual cycle and borderline personality disorder, and this includes wanting to slap the fuck out of people when they annoy me to no end. At night, when everyone has gone to bed, the emotional sadness of everything that is fucked up in my life begins to tighten over my entire body, causing streams of tears to flow from my face and my body to tighten up into the smallest form I can make, knowing I will never be successful. In my head, all the thoughts that I have processed with a clearer head than the current moment come rushing back like lightning strikes in a thunderstorm. Each attack stings as worse as the last one, and all I can do is ride out the storm in my mind, body, and soul until the skies clear up. My eyes are swollen from crying and I'm left wondering how am I going to hide in the morning that I had the attack the night before because the one question I hate more than any other is, how are you? I know if I say not good then I will have to explain why and feel like a burden after or say that I'm fine, which would be a lie to myself and those that are trying to take care of me. Having borderline personality disorder means never meeting average standards of society, and always feeling like you'll never find a balance. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for giving us some insight into the intensity of the emotional roller coaster that is a borderline personality disorder. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Troubled Taylor. She's Bisexual in her 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. She's never been sexually abused. She's been emotionally abused. Um, Darkest thoughts. I think about being handled roughly in a sexual encounter. I have never had one. I think about how I would react if one of my siblings died suddenly, and I feel ashamed to think that it would not affect my life in the way that it should. Darkest secrets. When I was probably five or six years old, I tried to glue a plastic straw to my genital region to my genital region using this brown paint that was lying around the house. I guess I must have been jealous of my older and younger brother. I saw their penises when we bathed together, nothing sexual. I look back on this memory and laugh, but it's also something that I never shared even with even my closest friend. I think I have not shared it because it means something more to me than I let myself believe. Around the same age, I remember being in our guest room at my childhood home my younger brother and I were reading books to each other, playing around or something, and I remember asking him to put his hands around my throat and choke me while I laid on the bed. I have no idea why. I have searched and searched through my memories for something that made me like the idea of being choked or even hurt. It wasn't until years later, when I went through puberty and discovered masturbation, that I found my way to BDSM porn. At age 21, I have come to terms with my turn-ons and sexual fantasies for the most part, but I still wonder, very often, what made me ask my brother to choke me. Um, there's a listener I know who has shared with me that <clears throat> um, she, uh, one of her sexual turn-ons is being uh, roughed up or, or degraded, and she remembers... <clears throat> as like six years old wanting to be thrown down the stairs and getting like sexually aroused from it and i don't remember if she even had a memory that she could uh, link it to i don't know why i mentioned that but i guess i always want people to feel i want to remind them that they're not alone and whatever it is that they're they're dealing with um but it sounds like you're 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 Um, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. As a teen, I would dress up uh, in what I thought were, quote, slutty, I reject the term now, clothes and masturbate in them. I even stole clothes and makeup from friends' houses for this purpose. Before I knew what rape really was, I once undressed in my bathroom, watching myself and silently acting out some rape scene in which I mouthed, please rape me to an invisible person. I don't think I would ever share this with a friend or family member or even a therapist, but it feels like less of a big deal to see it written down. <clears throat> what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to tell my mother that I've been struggling for years, that I am depressed and anxious and sad all of the time, that I despise our family. I haven't said this to her because I don't want to hurt her. She grew up in an adopted, as an adopted child in a lower-class working family. She has told me that all she wants from her four children is a sense of family. Well, you know, part of what families do is they discuss difficult issues, and and they have to be honest sometimes about things that the other person may not like hearing. That is a part that comes with being a part of a family. Um, the other part would be wanting to be a part of a photograph of a family, <laughs> You know that's not three dimensional. That is just uh, you know something you buy in a Hallmark card. Uh, what if anything do you wish for? I wish for the comfort of knowing what I want out of life. Well, you know my my hunch is that the more you speak up for yourself, the more in touch you'll get with your instincts, and your instincts will lead you to what you want out of life. But when we go through life walking on eggshells trying to protect other people from having the feelings that we all feel in life. Um, we get so out of touch with our instincts and our feelings. Um, so that's my, that's my two cents. Uh, have you shared these things with others? No, I lay in bed at night with the lights on and whisper my thoughts the way people do when they write. I think about all the things I will say to my therapist or the confrontations with friends that I so need to have. But when it comes to speaking up, I can't find all the words. I was selectively mute as a child, and I suppose that is carried over into my adult life. I highly recommend a codependency support group. How do you feel after writing these things down? Like things are a little clearer and being honest with your therapist. Uh, Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Stop feeling guilty. Life, thoughts, and desires are all complicated. It helps to work them out, but it also helps to let them be if you need to. Thank you for that. Another sip of tea. I'm officially sweating. I haven't rubbed my nipples in a while doing the uh, podcast. There was this weird six month period where I don't know if I was getting nervous or uh, if I was on a new med or what, but I would find myself rubbing my nipples while I was recording the podcast. not recording a guest, but doing these the the intros and outros to the to the podcast, the surveys. Then all of a sudden it left. Uh, this is an, a happy moment filled out by uh, Cardinal Rose. I think we read one of her surveys earlier in the, in the show. Uh, oh, I love this one. She writes, the alarm goes off in the morning and I spend a few minutes convincing myself I have to get up and get ready for the day. What helps with this is my 14-year-old cat jumping on my bed and kneading my chest while purring and marking my finger with her wet nose. The wetness doesn't bother me, and her attention on on the morning uh, reminds me of the bigger picture of why I have to get up, go to work, and deal with the bullshit every day. Because the money I make buys her food and Cosaquin. I guess that's a Cosaquin. I guess maybe that. Oh, it's a medication that helps her with her arthritis. She's reminding me that she not only belongs to me, but I belong to her, and our souls will forever be connected. I don't think you can. Overstate the comfort of a of a loving pet when you are struggling uh one of the first things I do when I wake up in the morning is I roll off the side of the bed and I kiss Ivy's snout and I scratch her belly, and then I walk over to the other side of the bed where Herbert is ensconced in a king like pile of blankets and pillows, and uh I kiss his face and I rub his belly, and I talk to him, and it's just a, it just helps me start my day. It, I, I don't know if it helps me get present, or if it helps, helps to remind me that I have a purpose in life, that that I can give and receive love, but it just really, really helps me. Uh, this is from the What Has Helped You survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself, fuck man, I should be over this shit. And uh, she writes, I'm 39, a nurse, and never thought I'd make it past 18. Um, What, if anything, uh, have have people said or done for you that has helped you with your issues? And she writes, my 10th grade biology teacher came to the hospital where I was trying not to die from anorexia. He brought me my assignments and told me I was getting an A anyway. He cried, told me I must go on and become a doctor he validated in one sentence what my entire family never could say you are worth it i just love it i i love a teacher that really cares that just you know their soul is into their job or a nurse or a doctor it just it it just means the world to people um same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Rom. Her issues are alcohol abuse, low self-esteem, undiagnosed depression, survivor of sexual and verbal abuse, insomnia, and general feelings of inadequacy. And then she writes, all the greatest hits. I think so. Um, and then what help, What help? one of the things that she loves to do, she writes, as a child in a cha- chaotic... Slow down, Paul. As a child in a chaotic home... I used to go to sleep listening to BBC radio on NPR. Listening to the news from so far away was a fantastic way to remove myself from the place I was. Plus, they had such great accents. That comforted me just reading that. I was, I could just, I I. I, I so relate to that. I so relate to that. I think it's why people love Star Trek is because it takes them out of this Takes them out of our world, and I think that's why I love documentaries. Why I find them so comforting is a well done documentary is you are transported to just a different place. Oh, our audio dropped out there for a second, um, but yeah, thank you, thank you for sharing that. That um, that soothed me just reading that. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself wannabe mama, 23. She is in her 20s. She's pansexual. She was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Uh, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I was, quote, raped multiple times in my late teens while very high slash drunk while using cocaine. I don't remember the details, so I'm not sure what to think of it, but it makes my stomach hurt and I kind of feel like I want to puke when I think about it. I also get a weird shame feeling in my groin. Also, when I was little, I think I may have been molested, possibly by my father. I remember borderline sexually inappropriate comments all through growing up, mainly focusing on how pretty I was or making lewd comments about my choice of dress, telling me I'd look like a slut with your ass hanging out if I wore shorts. That's not borderline sexually inappropriate. That's sexually inappropriate. Uh, My dad was also uh, always really into me and took me on dates that my mom didn't want to go on. Yuck. He would get upset when I didn't want to kiss him on the lips and to this day we will try to turn a peck on the cheek into a lip on lip, lip on lips, lips on lips kiss. Say that fast 10 times. When I was little, he would put his hands under my skirt to tickle me, and when I got older, he accidentally, on purpose, felt me up a few times while walking past me. Also, when I went to visit him in the hospital after his heart attack, I went to hug him and he cupped my ass with his hand. My mother and fiance were in the room but did not see. I wanted to puke or yell at him, but couldn't call him out under those circumstances. Actually, I wouldn't see anything wrong with doing that. I understand why in that moment you were frozen and didn't do it, but you could. Uh, recently, I've been having nightmare flashbacks to being a young child and being molested. I'm afraid it was by him. Well, you know, the stuff that you've described is sexual abuse that, you, that your father did. That If you told a social worker those things, they would probably come and remove you from the home or put him in jail that's my opinion i'm a a mental health professional but um that is fucked up shit and that is more than sexually inappropriate that is uh he's physically violating you and you know it doesn't have to be penetration for uh something to qualify as sexual abuse um anyway continuing uh she was physically and emotionally abused um Basically, she was uh, picked on by her brother and then told that she was overreacting and not protected uh, by her parents. Uh, She was always made fun of for being too sensitive. And I love this. She writes, therapists have since told me that really sensitive people tend to act out in chaotic circumstances. And it is common for the most sensitive child to also be the, quote, problem when it's really the whole family that has a whole bunch of problems. Amen. Amen. Um. Any positive experiences with your abusers? There are some positive experiences with all my abusers. It does make me feel conflicted and confused because it's easier to remember the good times than it is the abuse. The memories are more clear. I remember the feelings from the abuse, though, and that helps me to believe that, yes, it did happen. I'm not just being too sensitive and making it up. Darkest thoughts. Anal rape really turns me on. I feel horrible about it. I want to cry for everyone who has been harmed in this way, but I also exclusively come from watching horrible porn or replaying it in my head. Um, Darkest secrets. I feel like I've already shared most of them. Uh, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Anal rape. Especially a young, pretty white girl being fucked in the ass by a dirty old white man or a middle-aged black man. Either way, I want them to have a big cock. I feel horrible that it turns me on, but I feel a little lighter having shared it. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I wish I was better able to share my anxieties with my partner. He has anxiety himself, so oftentimes if I share an anxiety, it sets him off, and we have to spend time calming him down. I would have that conversation with him um, that sometimes you need it to be about you. Um, because, well, anyway, continuing, what if anything you wish for emotional health and peace for me, my partner and our future children. I wanted to read that first before I I made my comment, which is, um, there's some, you know, for, for you to create a healthy family environment. Um, I really, really encourage you to get honest with your partner, um, about the fact that sometimes it needs to be about you. And not have it turn into being about him and and to set boundaries with your father uh and to process what happened with the uh, with the therapist because uh that was sexual abuse and don't shame yourself for the stuff that turns you on um uh, Have you shared these things with others? Yeah, I've shared basically all of this with my partner. It went pretty well. Oh, okay. He understood where I was coming from, didn't judge, but obviously couldn't fix anything right away. His health insurance kicks in in two months, and so he is starting therapy then. Well, that's awesome. How do you feel after writing these things down? Lighter. And also, then I need to pee. Is writing down emotions a known diuretic? Uh, Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Just keep on going. Be true to yourself and don't give a fuck what anyone else thinks. They don't know your story and are in no place to judge. Amen. Amen. This is a happy moment filled out by Steph G. Uh, She writes, I was sexually abused as a child and have been having a difficult time with healing. After what seems like a long time, I was finally able to have sex with my loving boyfriend without crying or having flashbacks. I did get upset for a minute minute but he talked me through it and i was okay i didn't feel dirty or have negative thoughts during it i actually enjoyed it i know that there are going to be many more times that i cry during or after sex but i'm so happy and relieved to know that healing is possible and i can actually enjoy sex the support and love from my boyfriend is unlike anything i've experienced and i'm so happy to have him by my side beautiful 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 it's amazing the stuff that we can heal from. It is just amazing. But you know, when I think we're in that dark place, we want it all to happen immediately. And unfortunately, healing is a long process and um, a lot of two steps forward, one step back. But it sounds like you really understand that. This is from the What Has Helped You survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Dolphin Deb who processes negatives. Um, her issues are uh, struggling, uh My struggle is not having a filter to separate and protect myself from those people who use me or try to make me into them. Uh, And what helps her, she writes, creative creative visualization. Say no. You don't need to take care of everyone. If you take care for yourself, you will find that people you care for are the people you want to care for because they will never impose upon your boundaries. I'm having trouble reading tonight. That is such good advice. That is such good advice. Yeah, if we don't stand up for ourselves, we're never able to weed out toxic people from our lives. And we wind up being mediocre friends with too many people. Somebody posted on Facebook today about friendship. They said, I'd rather have four quarters than 100 pennies. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Monsieur Grand Fromage, Mister Big Cheese. Uh, he's filled out surveys for us before. He is eighteen. He's pansexual. He was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I was fourteen, almost fifteen, and like any true Australian, he puts in quote in parentheses sarcasm. I was getting drunk. This was my first time, and I was with my friend. She was 17 and had stolen the booze from her brother. Anyway, I got hammered. I still can't drink rum, and she, an experienced drinker, not sarcasm, was barely tipsy. We went for a walk down the road, and I kissed my first girl. I have a hazy memory of her going down and playing with my bits, then pushing me down to play with hers. We walked off the road to an area barely concealed by bush. She lays me down and straddles me. I can't remember how long I was down there. I do remember an orgasm, though. It was pretty neat. Basically repeat that twice more with the same girl, both times later at 15, although the last time we made it back to the house and had sex indoors for a change. After each time, I lied and said I couldn't remember the previous evening. I am by turns angry that my friend did that and didn't stop it, or said that I allowed that to happen more than once. Most of the time, I am at peace with it. I know I can't change it, and that my past shouldn't define me, but sometimes I hurt. P.S. The legal age of consent in New South Wales is 16. P.P.S. The legal drinking age is 18. P.P.P.S. I live in a rural area, so walking on the road wasn't an issue. You know, I think the important thing here is, and I say this all the time, is the feelings that you're left with and processing those instead of um, saying, does this fit into a, you know, neatly defined box of, you know, was this sexual abuse or or wasn't this? Because um, there's a lot of gray area in, in things. And, you know, I, I think you said that you're still uh, friends with her. Um, it might be good to have a conversation and say, you know, I'm still kind of feeling fucked up about this and I just need to talk about it. Um, anyway, uh, he's never been physically abused. He's not sure if he's been emotionally abused. He writes, I was never hit besides the wooden spoon on the backside when I was being a shit. My mother worked hard being a single mom with three kids with me as the youngest. I guess that is why she has never really shown much interest in me unless I was in trouble. But my sisters have always told me, uh, that she's actually quite proud of me. She just never seemed happy to have kids or me. I should call her sometime. Anyway, when I was 12, she sent me to live with my father, separating me from my sisters because I found her sex toys. But my father was and is an alcoholic, very distant and stoic. He has never said he was proud, even though the guys at the pub tell me he is when he isn't around. Um, I finished school fifth in my year in the top 10% of the state. I was accepted to university and have still never even had so much as a good job as a quote, good job, um, meaning them complimenting him. I feel as though I shouldn't blame him. Uh, this is how he was raised. Any positive experiences with your abusers? Uh, I wasn't, still am still friends with the girl. Well, now a guy. They almost seem like different people, which helps. I can't blame my parents. They also had shitty parents, although I suppose I have hopefully learned from them. I just can't hate them. You know, I think there's a difference too between allowing yourself to have anger and quantifying that as saying, I hate my parents, you know, because saying you hate somebody is is a frightening place to go to because it feels so definitive and, and infinite. But allowing yourself to have ang- feelings of anger towards your parent is a great way to purge those feelings. So just, you know, allow yourself the freedom to... To experience or express any emotion that you want to, as long as it's done in a safe manner and isn't hurting somebody else. Um, you know, by hurting somebody else, I mean you know in a in a way that is you know pushing some somebody in front of a bus because you're suddenly think about what a dick your dad was. Um, darkest thoughts. I think about hurting my parents just for them to acknowledge me faced, for them to acknowledge me to my face. I have rape fantasies where I'm either totally submissive or aggressive, bordering on sadistic. I've had thoughts about stabbing my psychiatrists. I enjoy their reactions when I've told them (laughs) that is usually when I get a new one. (laughs) Oh, dude, I love you. Uh, I still get in fights, uh, Darkest Secrets, I still get in fights to either get hurt or hurt someone. I'm not sure which is worse. All I know is that it makes me feel. I recommend uh, Fight Club if you've never seen it. You, that might help you feel less alone. Uh, I am sexually promiscuous. Even in the middle of bum bumfuck nowhere, you can still get a bum fuck, Especially with men, although I take all comers. I don't want a date, just hook up. I don't think I want to or think i will ever get married i still drink and i don't think i've ever said no to drugs acid's nice but more of a sometimes thing and weed or alcohol i never mix them i'm not an animal uh, is more of an everyday thing it is still fun i know that will change and that i will regret it one day until then i still haven't tried the big two meth or heroin i have conflicting ideals about who i want to be On one hand, I'm quite masculine, a big muscle dude, and I'm happy with that, but there is a part of me that wants to be feminine and dainty. I envy my sisters at times, and have even stolen some of their clothes to wear. I barely sleep. It's been this way for years. I hide this from everyone, and I don't know why. Recreational drugs never work. I told a psychiatrist once, and nothing came of it. It's currently 3.46, and I tried for two hours to sleep. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. BDSM. I want to do it all. I already enjoy the bondage and the domination, submission. I am exhilarated and exalted by it. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Dear parents, please love me to my fucking face, not behind my back. Dear friend, I don't hate you, but I probably should have said this earlier because it might help. Fuck off. How do you? F- what, if anything, do you wish for? Peace and calm. Have you shared these things with others? Only mental health professionals and doctors. It would be hard to bring up in a conversation. The doctors and mental health professionals are all understanding, but I keep things from them. How do you feel after writing these things down? Weak, sad, vulnerable, pathetic, relieved, and calm. Isn't it amazing how many emotions we can feel at the same time? Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Nope. Nope. I'm quite probably a bad influence even if only for the fact that I seem to function. You're also 18 and um, I don't say that in a condescending way but um, it, it you've got a lot of life ahead of you and the good news is is there's a lot of time to work on this stuff and to process it with people that are that can help you and people can overcome uh, some pretty incredible things pretty incredible things so sending you some love this is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, giraffe and she writes me and my boyfriend had just started dating and having sex one night we had anal sex and it was great Afterwards, we were cuddling on the sofa and watching TV when I had this urgent need to go to the toilet. I jump up from the sofa, but don't make it. I poop my pants with shit, sperm, and lube while having eye contact with my new boyfriend. We laughed about it, and it was totally fine. I still like to shock my friends with this story. (laughs) Oh my God, I'm sorry if that was too graphic for some of you guys, but it made me laugh and I had to read it. I'm not sure what you would call that when that happens, uh, but I'd like to suggest the name Butt Sunday. I just made a Butt Sunday. (laughs) This is from the What Has Helped You survey. This is filled out by a person. I I don't know if it's a male or female uh, because I don't have the other page to this. Uh, They call themselves Wolf Snacks, and their issues are depression, social anxiety, and PTSD. Oh, it's a female. And uh, what has helped her? Uh, She writes Dr. Dan Siegel's books, uh, running between 30 and 40 miles a week. Uh, Epsom salt baths. Uh, Epsom salt baths are also good after a butt sundae. Uh, And she takes Prozac. And what have people said? Uh, or done that have helped you. She writes, my therapist reminds me that I don't have to attend functions or be around certain people that I feel anxious around or uncomfortable with. Just because I'm invited or expected, I still get to say no. Only recently have I begun to respect myself in this way and am loving it. I may not see my family very much anymore, but my mental health is improving. Just knowing I get to say no makes me smile. I still feel the guilt as I am declining uh, and it's almost Overpowering, but it passes. Oh, declining, I see. Declining their invitation. I thought she meant like her mental state was declining. Uh, guilt, a deadly weapon. My family uses it with no shame. If I were to attend a function and have to deal with my uncle, who has been inappropriate with me since I was 12, who smells my hair, gives me an unfamiliar-like compliments and licks his lips before trying to kiss me of the mouth. Or my rape-shaming conservative sisters. Or my boundaryless kissing on the mouth emotionally incestuous father, I would be mentally fucked up for a week afterwards, weeks afterwards, so not attending family functions is a gift I give myself and my husband. I wish I would have known I had the strength when my now twenty three year old and eighteen year old children lived at home. They would have appreciated this gift as well. you know, but the good news is, and thank you for that, it is so profound, and the good news is is you're doing it now. That is, the, that is the important thing, and I have experienced that. The, not having contact with my mom has been the greatest vacation I've ever had. I still feel guilt about it, but it has helped my self-esteem. Um, and then finally, we have a happy moment, and um, this is filled out by Pete. And he writes, uh, My confession of the evening, I'm on a Greyhound bus to Houston, and I see this son, no more than 10 years old, with his mother traveling to Dallas. He kept wanting snacks to eat, but then his mother broke down and told him that they didn't have money because she used most of what she had to get them their bus tickets. The kid proceeded to look at her and tell his mom that he understood and that he knew it was for the best. This poor sap, me, being the guy he is, got off on the next rest stop and bought sandwiches, snacks, pop, and water. I wrote a note that simply said, sometimes there will be people who overhear some of your problems and most of them won't do anything. All I ask of you is to be the best you can be for you and your child like you are now and live an amazing life, signed Anonymous. I've never heard or seen a mother cry so much into her child's shoulder. Wow. Wow. Although I'm slightly disturbed by the fact that the mother was crying into her child's shoulder that is such a... Uh, ah, that's just so... What a beautiful man you are. What a beautiful, beautiful gesture. It's amazing how just the... The things that we can do that that can stay with people. I mean, that is going to stay with that woman for the rest of her life. That That... That I think we forget sometimes that we repre- represent humanity to other people. And the kindness that we can show that is not difficult can really change how somebody feels about society. I forget that all the time. It's hard to remember that when you're watching nine hours straight of Narcos or uh, playing Civ V. Anyway, I uh, I hope you got something out of this episode um, or the surveys. I'm sure you love the, the interview with Glenn. That um, had to touch me so deeply. Um, I hope our paths cross again. And um, I hope you heard something tonight that helped you, helped remind you that uh, there's hope if you're willing to get out of your comfort zone and, and ask for help. Um, things can change. And uh, I hope you know that you're not alone. And uh, thanks for listening.
0: Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Everybody bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.